guess what, garden nerds? We got a sponsor. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned small business that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm to your door. Sunset Lake CBD has something for everyone. They offer tinctures, edibles, salves, and coffee designed to help with sleep, stress, and sore muscles. They're located outside Burlington, Vermont, and were originally a dairy farm, but in 2019, they decided to diversify and start growing hemp. You know, hemp. It's going to save the world. Anyway, you're supporting regenerative agriculture when you buy products from Sunset Lake CBD. They use regenerative and organic methods, and their farm workers are paid a living wage, and the employees own the majority of the company. I've been using the hemp and arnica salve, and I really love how it smells and feels. And my husband has been drinking the coffee, and he says that he's having a no-jitter experience. So use the promo code NERD for 20% off your entire order at sunsetlakecbd.com. Now, on with the show. It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests, and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. This week, we're chatting with Leslie Harris of LH Gardens in Charlottesville, Virginia. Leslie has over 30 years of gardening experience as an educator, coach, and passionate home gardener. She also has her own podcast, which you may have heard me on or will hear me on, (laughs) called Into the Garden with Leslie. She's made the move from Connecticut to Virginia and launched her business in 2014, where it has grown and still thrives today. Thanks so much for joining me, Leslie. I'm very glad to be here. This is one of my favorite podcasts, so it's fun to be on it. Thank you so much. Well, I am a bit jealous because you live in one of the most beautiful places on earth, Charlottesville, Virginia. I remember driving through there on my way to Thomas Jefferson's Monticello and thinking, God, it's so green and spacious. I could definitely live here. So what was it like to move from cold Connecticut to mild Virginia? Oh, it was such a pleasure because I grew up in Alexandria. Um, I came down here as an undergrad long time ago, back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. And um, then, then I then my husband and I moved up to got married. My husband and I moved up to Connecticut, and honestly, it's the same zone because we were right on the coast. We were in Greenwich for all those years. Oh. I didn't know anything about gardening. And when in your intro, when you say I was a teacher and a coach, that is true. But guess what? I was teaching Spanish and coaching uh, basketball. So okay, well. Gardening stuff was really just the avocation. And then we had taught, my husband and I had taught, um, he was an administrator at the same wonderful school, Brunswick School in Greenwich for um, over 30 years. And then we were like, you know, we need a change. And it was his idea to start this business and turn it into my vocation. And so although it is the same horticultural zone, it really is different. For instance, hydrangeas are like, oh, yay, they are blooming as opposed to in Greenwich where you're like, of course they're blooming. Um, and <laughs> you can't blow You can't grow a few other things that just don't love this, you know, just day after day, week after week of high humidity and high temperatures. But other than that, it's, um, it's pretty close. And I have really enjoyed just experimenting with this little microclimate and the and the I would say that the biggest difference, Christy, is the Virginia red clay. Yes. All these brick buildings, they came from someplace and it's this soil. It's pretty funny. Yeah, I have uh, in one of my blog posts about Monticello, I have a picture of my hand holding the red clay of that garden. And it's so different from what I grow in here. It's amazing and mineral rich, I imagine, yes? Mineral rich and wonderful for some plants. A lot of plants do like it and it holds the moisture really well. But when it dries out, oh my gosh, it's like trying to pour water back into a brick. So you really have to work at it. 
Yeah. So it's important to mulch and keep the soil moist for the most part all the time. Oh yeah. Well, we'll, we'll come back to talk about this, this location a little bit more, but I first want to talk about your own garden. Do you have one? And if you do, what's it like? So we can fantasize about what it's like to have like rain and space. <laughs> here. So lucky. When Jeff and I were looking for a house, we looked at this property where we are now. And I said to him, this is so good that I might not be able to garden it at other people's houses because this is such a fun piece of property. It's 0.8 <laughs> acres. It's at the base of little Lewis mountain, which is right outside. Well, you can, if you're standing at the top of Lewis mountain, you can look right down on the rotunda. Um, so we're right between those two things. And it has a stream running through it. It has a bog part. It has some beautiful old um, po- tulip poplars and oaks. The tulip poplars are well over a hundred years old. Probably the oaks are the same age. Tulip poplars are just so immense because they grow faster. You know, it's, so it has various levels. I was so lucky it was on the historic garden week tour this past spring. And so it really looks spiff for a minute there. That is a <laughs> thing of the past, um, but I'm, I'm very, very lucky. And when I moved here seven years ago, it was covered with English ivy and poison ivy, good population of that also. And so as terrible as that is, it's a, you know, it's a terrible alien invasive plant, but because it catches every leaf, every dead bug, it was like that Virginia red clay was covered up with this fantastic O level of a complete 0.8 acres of compost almost. So, so I'm very lucky. My soil is quite good and I compost now. So better all the time. Yeah. Living mulches are uh, really awesome. Even if they're invasive (laughs) (laughs) for purpose, they do. Wow. And, and how much rain just for our jealous listeners, do you actually get where you live? Yeah. Lots. No, actually not lots. Um, we have to work at it. I'm oh, living at the base of the mountain. I'm very lucky to, I, I got some of those huge and so attractive plastic tanks, like 300 gallon water tanks. Mm-hmm. Luckily I was able to hide them behind some vegetation. Um, so I collect the rain that comes down off the mountain and down off of my gutter so I can water more freely, but it's not, it's not California. It's not Connecticut either. It's uh, it's hot and, and can be dry and we have to watch it. And then every once in a while, we're like, oh, I guess it was two or three summers ago, we had 30 extra inches of rain on top of our, I don't know, what do we usually get? Probably 30 inches of rain. I don't know, 20. And it was a huge problem for boxwood blight. You've heard of that terrible disease. And the boxwoods around here are so important and historic and everybody loves them. And they were just like, it was, it was pre-COVID um, kind of panic, like, don't come on my property. You, oh you my might, gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a big deal. And now that we've lived through a pandemic, it actually wasn't a big deal, Not was so much. it? Yeah, perspective. No. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I did lose some, um, I, a place in my garden, because it's fairly new, that I just thought was fairly wet, actually became really wet. And so I introduced the um, button bush and some other great bog-loving plants, and I'm really having a good time with it. It's so funny how... Plants that just roll off of your tongue are totally foreign to me. And, you know, in our climate, we just don't like, those aren't things we have here. So it's interesting. This is why I like talking to people who are all over the country and all over the world. I've talked to people in England and they also have things that really don't line up with what we have here. Cause I'm in a Mediterranean climate here in Southern California. You've got a completely different hot, humid thing going on. Yeah. Completely different. So it's just fun to talk about different parts of the world. We call it the air that you wear. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you do. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and meanwhile, I'm look, I was looking at my craggy hands last night. I'm like, so dry, so dry. And, and our humidity is not, we have like 
50 to 60% humidity almost all the time, but still it's just pretty dry for us. But anyway, let's move on. You focus mainly on ornamentals and landscaping as evidenced by what, you you know, the plants you just named. Um, What drew you to this particular interest? Well, when my son, who is now an old man of 35, was born and he was kind of sleepy and I had been a teacher, but I stopped in those first couple of years. I went back to it later, but, um, you know, you know, my husband was off at work and he was a sleepy, wonderful baby and the bills had been paid and the dinner was made. And I was like, what the heck is growing in this new yard that we're living in? Quickly found out how to identify poison ivy. That was messy. Um, (laughs) Um, and then what else is in there, you know, so I just start and I just loved it. I was hooked. And it was so long ago that there was no internet. There was no garden tip, you know, garden nerd tip of the week podcast to listen to. There was no great, you know, uh, YouTubes that I could see Christy, what's she doing? Of course, completely different climate, but I just, I wanted to make things look good. And so I was actually, I'm so old at it that I actually became this kind of um, person who was interested in old ideas of gardening. And it was all ornamental. I don't, for, for your listeners, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but I, I really am, I have a very meager vegetable patch, uh, basically enough to make the pesto and the salsa if pressed. But I'm sort of that, isn't that what the farmer's market is for? Right. So I'm pretty <laughs> bad about that sort of thing. If I were your neighbor, I would be robbing you every day, Christy. Uh-huh. Sure. Uh-huh. We would trade um, knowledge. Yeah, we would trade. Yeah, I would, I would give you snips of petunias. But I'm, I'm really more about the visual and the ornamental. That being said, I love the physical part of it too and the, and the compost and not so much the science, but just how things smell and how things look and getting back into naturalism. I'm, I mean, we're going to talk, I think, later about how to put beds to bed. And that has changed so much in, in speaking to various garden clubs that I used to do just three or four years ago. I'm like having to redo my entire deck because I'm like, well, that's not the way I would recommend to do it now, now that we know better about bug habitat. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, so I just, I love, I love creepy crawlies. I love bugs. I don't know that much about them, but I just love, I'm always one of those kids who was being outside and this was an excuse to be outside. So that's what drew me to it. Well, that you've led me into my next question as as this airs, we're going to be heading into fall. And so there are a lot of people who shut their garden down over winter or, well, we'll get to that in a minute. But for those who actually like to plant things that overwinter well, what are those things that you like to plant that overwinter well where you live? Well, when I design a garden and um, I'm not... I do love to design LH gardens is, you know, I do designing and consulting in addition to the podcasts and speaking. And when I design, I would always incorporate evergreen things that would keep the bones of a garden looking good. I don't want just mulch beds in winter. So evergreens have to be part of it. Some other, you know, native plants that that can look good would be, you know, that unfortunately there are very few native evergreens. Um, You know, you hear of the American boxwood, but as we know, that was introduced to the country several hundred years ago. It doesn't make it native. And the only good habitat it provides is physical habitat, which is not nothing, but it's not nearly as good as a, as a good meal. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a naturalized, we would call that a naturalized plant, I guess. Right. It's been here so long. It's people think of it as native, but it's not, but I don't think anybody really eats it except for those damn leaf miners. (laughs) (laughs) So. Oops, did we just take this podcast to another rating? <laughs> <Clean>. <laughs> no. 
all good. Okay. So yeah, always evergreens to have the bones of it in my own front border, which is most important to me as I have my business and my headdress is out there. Right? My back is a little bit of a, um, a, what do we call that? A mullet garden sort of, you know, business in the front and party in the back. <laughs> the back's a little, um, the back's a little wilder. The front is very controlled and I have very tall, um, wonderful uh, perennials that come out at this time of year. And I always do zinnias because they're some of my favorite. They basically cover up the bones and you don't even see those little meatballed. They're not boxwood. In my case, they are um, Japanese hollies, that the, the kind, the carnadas that look like. So I, I want that structure in winter because I'm going to let my perennial borders go much slower than I used to. And I'm going to keep any seed heads that I know attract goldfinches or other birds. And yet there's still a part of me that will always want at least a little bit of tidy. So evergreen structure is important to me. Mm -hmm. So some folks don't have the energy to plant as fall and winter comes on. What advice do you have to offer for those who are shutting down the garden for the season to protect things and that kind of stuff? Well, it depends on where you live. Um, if you want to leave things open, you know, and, and ready for the birds to eat, leave as, as much as you can. And it's not just that the birds can, you know, see these seeds. Of course, it's, it's, the, it's the habitat that you're creating. A lot of wonderful perennials have hollow stems, even like dahlias, which are going to look not so great, um, but they do have those nice hollow stems that our na native bees can nest in. Um, so I always use a rule of thumb, you know, if you don't mind the looks of your garden, I don't think that anybody should ever be beholden to what the neighbors might think. So if you're like, yes, it will be brown and it will not be so ugly because I know what I'm doing here, that's great. If you feel a little pressure from, oh, say, you know, neighbors or a spouse or something like, oh, this is a little untidy, just make sure that you leave an untidy bit for, for nature. I grow, uh, one of our favorite plants around here, one of my favorites is the native hydrangea arborescence. And I have Annabelle all over my property. Funny story, an old client had a planting and he was the kind of guy who liked it when it was, when it was installed and it was plant and then mulch and then plant and then mulch. And that's his taste. Um, and he was not ready for the Annabelle grove that, that wanted to be. Well, I helped him with this. And every time I pulled out a little piece that had a piece of root on it, guess where it came to my house. Uh -huh. So I have a great population of Annabelle's. I love that plant because I have the ones sitting way out in the front, which are baking in the sun. And then I have the ones in medium shade in the back and then deep shade in the back. And they all bloom to various extents. The ones in the back, I leave them all winter. I love to see the snow sitting on them. Um, the ones in front, yeah, I'm just, I'm not ready for that look. I want my meatball Ilex Cronata to have their time. Oh, and by the way, I go heavy on violas and pansies. You can around here and they last all the way. If you plant them in October, they'll last all the way to like the end of June when it starts getting too hot for them. Mm -hmm. Now over the winter, they're going to either be, they can be covered by snow for a, a week or two, but not, not for too long. And they can also have those days like, wow, it is 27 degrees. And I look like it's 27 degrees <laughs> the next week. It could be 65 and, and they look beautiful. So those are great plants to, to take you from season to season. But with the Annabelles, I will cut those down to the ground. And so you can't even see them. You just see a neat layer of mulch and my pansies and stuff. And then, but in the back, like I said, I will, I will let them stand and both ways make me happy. It's just, I really believe that it's your garden, whoever you are and whatever makes you happy is what you should be doing. Yeah. You're reminding me of the hydrangea lady whose name I cannot remember, but she's this, this woman who had 
a touring garden of hydrangeas in her on her property and every year she would cut them down to the ground and that scares the crap out of me because I'm like what if they don't come back and so you do both you leave some and you cut some down and and they they return well so that's just for that type so you know there are four basic five really basic types if you count the climbing the petiolaris um most of them bloom on old wood. So the oak leaf hydrangeas, the macrophylla hydrangeas, the serrata hydrangeas, which are the mountain hydrangeas, I believe, and the paniculata hydrangeas. No, sorry. The paniculatas and the arborescents bloom on new wood. So you can really go quite hard on them in terms of pruning in winter because they do bloom on new wood. If you went hard on a macrophylla, unless it's, unless it's one of those endless summer types, which I'm not a huge fan of because that blue, those flowers are a little insipid in my eyes, but if, you know, if it looks good for you, that's great. That one is, you know, the macrophylla will not come back. So you do have to be, you have to know what you're doing. A clarifying question. So I have serrata macrophylla, those you don't want to cut. And then the paniculata and the, what it was the other? Paniculata. So the panicle hydrangeas, ones such as, oh, strawberry, strawberry, vanilla, limelight, little lime, those you can, those you can prune. So it's the arborescence type, like Annabelle. Arborescence type, okay. Or the paniculata type, those you can prune because those always bloom on new wood. The other ones you can prune, of course, but you might be missing out on some flowers. I mean, I do it anyway. I'll prune my azaleas in winter. They're about to flower a few weeks later, but I don't want them to flower like, you know, a foot away from what I, I think the shape should be, which by the way, is not a meatball. I hate meatballed azaleas, but it's, <laughs> but I just don't like, I don't like crazy bits and maybe there's something behind it. I'm not going to miss a few flowers. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I do a lot of talking on pruning when I, I'm, I'm on Instagram and I talk about these Tuesday tips in the end, I, I always try to say this tip does not have to be executed. This tip is for people who might want a little bit more control. Mm -hmm. And are there any things, you know, I, I see some people covering stuff with blankets or putting straw over them. Are there any things that you in particular like to protect over winter? I do push the limits of my little climate and I'm very lucky because I have really good sunshine in the front and I have a couple of sheltered spots. So I'm growing things that are 7B um, and usually an extra layer of mulch will work. I grow bananas, uh, which of course could not, do you? I, I imagine you actually grow bananas like the fruit. We have banana trees out here in, in our, in my neck of the woods. I do not have one personally, but I was just visiting someone who does have them. So you're talking about an ornamental type of. Well, I'm talking about the kind that would fruit if, oh. if you live in Charlottesville, Virginia. Okay. And so <laughs> I have a, um, I have an acquaintance gardener who actually gets the chicken wire and, you know, so leaves the, um, the foliage and the stalk and all that and gets the chicken wire, this huge structure. I mean, it looks like it could be a small kindergarten if it weren't stuffed with, you know, straw and hay to protect it. So he could possibly get fruit the next year. Me, I just chop that sucker down, put it right into the compost pile and throw an extra layer of mulch on the nubbins. And then it comes back up. And it's kind of cool, for instance, when this tour took place in April, there was no banana. And so it kind of left a hole, but it kind of, because the bananas are big, yeah. um, but it kind of like, oh, all of a sudden, look at the shape of this U behind it, which I never notice if the bananas are there. So I like that kind of change. Yeah. Um, I, I wish so bananas, like you mentioned, they do get huge. And so if you're not careful and you don't keep pruning out the new pups or taking the old things away that it, it expands and 
I just don't quite have the room to allow that. So I don't have any, but I really want to, because they do grow here. So I anyway. wonder if you could do one in a pot just for that exotic sort of tropical look. Well, it would have to be a pretty big pot and it does, it does, it would blow out of the pot eventually, but it's something I, I don't think I haven't thought about it. I really <laughs> tempted. Uh, so let's move on to something I wish I had more of in my life. Were it not for gophers and the lack of rain, I would probably have a ton of bulbs in my life because fall is a great time to plant bulbs. And I imagine you have incorporated them into your world in some degree. So how do you approach this task of planting bulbs and what are some of your favorites? Well, it's been interesting, just like with anything, and I've heard you talk about it on your podcast, the dearth of seeds, that you have to act kind of quickly these days. You know, um, we have 17 or 18 million new gardeners in the United States. So if you want to order bulbs, by the time you hear this podcast, I hope there's some left for you. But I'm going <laughs> to try to uh, do that fairly early. You know, we're talking here in July, and I'm going to try to get mine done fairly early. You know, I, I, I love to naturalize daffodils. I love the early uh, the succession we do glory of the snow and then snowdrops and then that little aranthus what is that the uh people call it oh i can't remember it's that, it's that cute little yellow thing that looks like a a, a a choir boy with jaundice it has that you know it's it's got that really frilly collar like a choir boy oh, right okay uh, oh shoot i can't remember the name aranthus is the botanical name okay I've uh, so i do succession of those love tulips can't really treat them as perennial here but a smattering always come back and then i do a couple of late ones that some people may not have heard of and they would be well leucogem l-e-u-c-o-j-e-u-m leucogem um, and that is, I think the, the best cultivar is Gravetide Giant. Gravetide being that wonderful place over in England with William Robinson, that old 19th century gardener. Some of your listeners might be tracking that guy. Wonderful place to visit. Gravetide Manor is now a primo hotel. Everybody should go. But anyway, so the cogem comes sort of along with your late tulips and it's white and it looks like a huge lily of the valley, but it's a, it's a month ahead of Convalaria. So it's, it's kind of cool. It, it kind of gets your, your appetite ready for the lily of the valley, which will come later. And then one of my um, favorites also is a very late one, which I believe is native to the Northwest of the United States. It's Kamasia. Some people call it Quamash. And it's a blue, um, kind of a purple, well, you know, when you say blue and you're talking about a flower, it's almost always purple, right? Because, yeah. Uh, but it's- <laughs> I it's, say purple. I okay. don't I don't say blue. And I know that's wrong because they say purple doesn't exist in nature. I'm like, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it sure does. It does in my garden. It's purple to my eye. Yeah. Uh, it is a purpley blue um, and it's racemes. It's about two and a half feet tall, two feet tall. Um, it doesn't mind a bog. So I dumped a ton of them down in my bog garden, particularly for this tour that took place last fall. And I'm hoping to reap the benefits of a repeat show next spring. I'll let you know. So those are some great ones. And then we always, I always like to tuck bulbs into pots. So I do my containers with um, lots of violas and pansies. And then, so those, you know, those don't need a lot of root room if there's a, if it's a large container. And so I'll tuck some um, little early, like the little tete-a-tete early tiny little daffodil down there or, or something that would, you know, just hover above a pansy as it's sort of emerging from winter. They're not all that tall. And sometimes with the pansies and violas around here, yes, I said you plant them in October and you'll still have them in June, that same plant. But sometimes they're like, eh, I'm not really feeling great. I need a huge crew cut. And so you give it to them and it rejuvenates. Nice. Speaking of containers, 
there are a lot of listeners who grow in containers. And I know that with, since we are primarily focusing on ornamentals and because the newest fascination for a lot of young people is indoor plants. Uh, let's talk about what the rules or design tricks are that you have for people who want to grow something eye-catching in containers. Oh, yeah. I just always turn to houseplants in containers, unless they're sitting in full sun, and there's not many houseplants can do that. So for two reasons. One is my house, but I don't have a really strong houseplant game. So my container, my houseplants, if they make it through the winter, they're going to just really need that um, break from me and back out to <laughs> mother nature. And so, you know, those really cool plants and I can't even name them because I'm so bad at houseplants, but, but picture cool houseplants coming out in pots in the shade, you know, what they like strong light, but, but not direct sunlight for a lot of them. And, and so I just, I just, push them in and out. I have a decent collection of agaves, which of course have to come in. And that's interesting because, you know, you can let yours get as big as you want. Well, maybe not you particularly. They get but, huge here. Yeah. And so, no, I'm saying to you, sir, you must stay in this uh, 14 inch pot and we'll have a root prune every once in a while. And this is your territory. Good luck. Because I just, I'm not, I'm not going to dig it out of the ground every summer. Mm -hmm. And do you tuck that into, do you share that pot with agave with some other succulents? No, no, it's, he's really the show. So they're, they're all at this stage, they're all kind of at the edge of their existence, like just as big <laughs> as that pot. Um, but I will tuck in with, um, if I have a meager house plant, then I'll tuck in something that seems to be of the, you know, that is flowering, that seems to be, okay, maybe, maybe we do a, a, a trailing terrenia or something. So I have, um, I'm always able, well, for the last couple of years, able to have my cordylines. I, I don't know how you say that, but it's a lime green spiky thing. Sometimes they come in red foliage, but I have some lime green ones and they have survived for me. So they get their, you know, their reward is to go outside in the summer. And they're so beautiful in chartreuse that I always put that bluish purple terrenia spilling out from under them in some urns right outside. So uh, yeah, uh, taking the plants in and out, there's definitely a different look. I know that some gardeners change it up much more frequently than I do, but a little bit lazy on that count. Um, still, I like to have, I don't want a container to go empty even in winter. Right. And I think for me, when I think containers, I always think of that rule of thumb of thrill, spill and fill. Do you use that or do you have other other ideas that you use for aesthetic choices when you design garden containers? I I absolutely use it. It's just the only thing that doesn't make that true sometimes is that sometimes your tall thing is not the thriller, although (laughs) the thriller is generally tall. So I'm looking as we're talking at this um, little black knight cryptomeria that I have one of those little dwarf evergreens. It's so cute. And, um, I would say that it's kind of blending into the scenery now in winter it's, it does kind of steal the show, but right now in summer, no, I'm looking at some really cute little finkas and angelonia underneath of it and of some petunias spilling down. So thriller is the tall thing. And yet in this case, I think that the, the midsection of this particular container that I'm looking at looks better, but you know, it really is nice to have things that go up and down and middle in a container and, and poof out. I, I, yes, I, I think that really works. And the thing that I do, Christy, that I don't do with a regular garden for myself or for clients, I don't fill up a, a garden that I've designed. I, I, I do have, you know, it's kind of plant mulch, plant mulch at the beginning. Mm-hmm. The idea is for everything to fill in. I do go for instant gratification on a container because why? Because life is short and you want that to just look beautiful as soon as you plant it. That's why. 
So to just to translate that, uh, because for in designer speak, you want to plant things that they're, they're going to be a very different size when they're mature than when they are, when you plant them and you want to leave the space in your landscape for them to fill in, but in containers, you're jamming them all in. So they're just pretty instantly. Right. I am. I, and that's just my personality. I don't think you have to, you plant a four inch petunia, you know, by the, by August, it's going to be voluptuous and flowing down. And, and, and if you've taken good care of it, practically hiding that container, I just, it's in my mind that I want, I want pretty that, what that, that first day that I plant, it's just the way I think of it. Yeah. And that makes sense with flowers. I, I certainly follow the, the landscapers policy when I do herbs in containers, cause they are going to get really big and especially perennials like oregano and thyme. And this is more for folks who want to try a, a, a cute little herb garden at home. I would say, give them the space that they need, unless you're doing mint, then I'd say like cram four different mints in a pot and let it just go nuts. Cause that's yeah. what mint does. That's a great idea. Yeah. And if, you, if you're sad with, um, you know, I do offer to clients, I'll, I'll explain to them why there is going to be a, a bit of Brown here, mulch between new plants, babies as they grow. And you can always supplement those with some annual sprinkles, some nasturtium or petunia seed and let that ramble between your new and in and amongst your new landscape per perennials or flowering flower flowering shrubs until they get to be where they're going to be. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And nasturtiums are edible and they're pretty and they come back year after year, unless you don't want them to, then you have to pull them out. But I think I planted nasturtiums like 20 years ago and they just keep coming back every year. Ooh, lucky you. Oh, that's wonderful. So that was another question. Follow-up. Do you have repeaters like that? Do you have self-seeders that come back after every yeah. year? Yeah. And in this garden, it's always been, it's funny to note the differences between here and, and living in Connecticut. The one that I was constantly editing and sharing was the Alcamilla mollus, the ladies mantle. And that just doesn't like our humidity here, but clammy, um, let's see. Oh, that wonderful verbena bonariensis, the real tall airy one, uh, foxgloves. Um, oh, what is that funny pearl of opal? I can't remember. It's a, it's that bright green annual that's constantly self-seeding for me. So, um, you know, I do compost and that means that everything I take, if I'm tidying every seed, every little thing goes back into the compost pile. I have no idea. You know, you're, you're the, you're the science uh, girl with the, with, I have no idea whether, and I'm pretty sure it doesn't, whether my compost pile gets hot enough to, to kill those seeds. I'm just ready to have those seeds come back wherever they want to be in the garden next year. I think that's kind of an interesting adventure. In order to kill weed seeds, well, seeds, weed seeds and, um, and diseases, your compost bin has to get up to 130 degrees, which most home compost bins maybe climb above, just above hundred. If that mostly they hover between 90 and hundred degrees, which is fine. It does uh, slow that's cold, cold, cold composting. It breaks things down, but it's generally not, not going to kill the weed seeds or diseases. So but so that, that can be a bonus if you want stuff volunteering all over your yeah. garden. Happy surprises everywhere. Yeah. All right. It is tip time. Do you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the garden nerd audience? Yes, I do, Christy. Um, I was uh, thinking about, you know, when we're talking about containers and we, I, I don't like to let them stay empty. If you didn't have the interest or the climate to be able to have things that overwinter, such as 
oh, hellebores or pansies, violas, that kind of thing. Some, you know, we do a lot of um, ornamental kale, which can look kind of yucky by the end of uh, February, but it looks, looks good in the fall. Mm-hmm. Anyway, an, a trick that I learned on a budget as a personal gardener up in Connecticut was to just clear out the, the, the crispy plants that have gone away in the first frost and just walk around my own yard and, and pull my, you know, cut my thriller, which is a bunch of I don't know, really tall stalks of a sky pencil holly or just some interesting um, branches from an oak leaf hydrangea, you know, that, that has that cool exfoliating bark. Uh, maybe some of the foliage has maintained some of the dry flowers. And then, so, it, so that's your thriller. And then in the middle, you could do some nice little snippets of boxwood as your kind of a rough, kind of a filler. And then you might not be able to wangle a spiller in winter. But what I'm saying is you can just go ahead and stuff your pot with things that you've cut around your own yard and make a really fun um, arrangement. We do use a lot of balls of hydrangea. We use the flowers from grasses mm-hmm. and bundle them together with a stake. We use, oh, you know what? I had a, a happy experiment with the red twig dogwood. I used a lot of that because, okay, it's coming up on Christmas time. Let's just jam a bunch of red twigs from a red twig dogwood into this pot. We had a kind of a wet winter and next spring we had a bunch of new red twig dogwoods that had rooted in that soil. Oh, wow. Okay. So that, that pretty much took no effort. <laughs> yeah. It was a wonderful surprise. Um, so just keeping your, and then if, if that, if that container is in a really sunny location and things start to look, say, hmm, crispy uh, in, in after Christmas, say midway through January, just do it again. And that'll last you until planting time, depending on where you live. You, you can do it two or three times over the summer. And it's a beautiful dried arrangement. It's magnolia leaves. You know, we're so lucky to have the magnolia um, grandiflora around here. So that's a really good one with its awesome, you know, green on the one side and then the kind of a Ralph Lauren brown on the other. That's so um, way of describing yes. that. <laughs> exactly. I love that plant. So just, just to make your own arrangement and experiment with what might work for you. And also keep in mind that if you keep the soil moist, hey, you might get some new plants out of the deal. That's so great. And it's also kind of a habitat for our critters and whatnot over the winter. And and if if you're doing it in summer too, that's a great idea. I had never thought to do that, but thank you for sharing that. Well, you are welcome. (laughs) Well, and thank you for that expert tip, Leslie. And thank you for being on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. I really enjoyed it. It's so fun. And it's, it's, uh, it's going to be fun to weird, but fun to listen. You know, like I said, I listen to you all the time and then there will be my voice. You'll hear yourself through this one. (laughs) Yeah. So how do people find you? Well, so I have a, I have a pretty good website. It's getting revamped and it's lhgardens.com. And then I'm active on not all social media, but I do, I do, I'm pretty good on Instagram. So that's Leslie Harris, LH. All right, garden nerds, you'll find a link to LH Gardens on gardennerd.com this week. We'll also share Leslie's podcast and links to the gallery on her website. So you can see some of the cool work that she's done. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple podcast or wherever you stream. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under gardennerd1, on Facebook as gardennerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!